What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, December 10th, 2021. This is Data Science Happy Hour number 61. 61 weeks we've been here for y'all, man. 61 weeks. It's been awesome. Hanging out with everybody. Hanging out with all these lovely, beautiful people. What's up, everybody? Shout out to Eric Sims, Ken G, Rashad in the building, Monica, Jennifer, Russell, uh, also uh, sitting in the room, but not visible at the moment. Aiden, Serge, Auntie, super excited to have all you guys here, man. Hope you guys had a great week. Um, hopefully, uh, you, know, you guys were, were enjoying yourselves this week, doing awesome, fun stuff. Uh, you know, if you got anything awesome, funny you want to share about this week, feel free to share it uh, with us. Uh, everybody joining us on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Twitter, wherever it is, Twitch, sorry, wherever it is that you're joining us. If you got questions, feel free to... Uh, to let us know right there in the chat. I'll be happy to take all of your questions. Uh, let's go ahead and get this uh, get this warmed up. I see we've got a couple of, couple of um, questions in the queue. Uh, Monica has a question, so go for it, Monica. Awesome, okay. So um, a lot of you might already know, if you don't, I'm obsessed with learning. Um, and I've been posting the past couple of weeks. Uh, currently, I am studying for a certification. So I was just curious from like a soft skills perspective to get your guys's um, go to techniques for uh, learning when you're like studying for an exam or certification. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's go to Kenji. I see Kenji is laughing. I think Kenji there's uh, definitely one to uh, get some good tips here for sure. <laughs> Well, I, I'm actually in the process of making a video on like how I would learn to learn if I could start over, like just like learn anything. And so there's, it's currently scripting, it's like 12 pages so far. So I'm going to have to cut it down to make it into a video. But needless to say, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts on this topic. I'm going to try and be kind of brief because that'll leave room for people to watch the video and whatnot. But Monica, if you want, I can give you the early draft if you'd like and uh, get your feedback, but it also might help you as well. Uh, For sure. Yeah. So from like, like learning perspective, I think upfront, one of the most important things for me is to actually be able to consume information at like high volumes relatively quickly and to be able to digest, to digest it. So like outside of a task specific thing, like studying for an exam, I actually think it's really important to first start like practicing reading, reading and like consuming information faster, or if you prefer to listen it, like figuring out how to listen and consume a lot of information. And then the next logical step off of that is like, how do you organize it really quickly? How do you take really good notes? How do you consolidate those types of things? Like, I think the of information is really overlooked. Like if I can read twice as fast as someone else, with the same comprehension, like you get compounding returns over a pretty long period of time, which I think is, you know, I think Harpreet will agree with me on that front. Like he's read so many books and he's been able to do that and like grow exponentially from the, from the information he's consumed there, probably because he reads more, but also I would imagine he consumes pretty fast. Uh, so that's like kind of the first thing uh, is like, okay, figure out information really fast uh, and, and efficiently. The second is starting is like getting into your mindset, right? Is how, uh, how do you approach any of these learning certificates, whatever it might be with the idea and the philosophy that you can do it. So like the growth mindset is hugely important here. Just like uh, figuring out in your mind, like how do you talk to yourself to make it uh, a very logical thing for you to do uh, and a very feasible thing for you to do to be able to tackle this, uh, whatever learning objective it is. There's a whole lot more to the psychology, but 
I wanted to, to make sure I touched on the specifics of learning a new skill um, and like a very specific piece of content or information. So obviously getting your hands dirty is something everyone recommends. Um, like doing problems primarily, working on projects, applying it to, to something that's relevant. Um, but there's also really unique ways that we can um, like remembers in, in like a, a fairly scientific way. So I forget what the technique is called, but it's a pattern for flashcards. And like, it's like a, 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 yeah, it's like a, there's a, there's a formula and a spacing algorithm that you can use that allows for like, uh, like optimal uh, remembering or retention of information. And there's some like uh, websites online. My friend Jeff Lee talks about it a lot. But essentially, there's an algorithm that you can use with flashcards. And based on how often you answer them correctly, it'll show you them in like a very close to perfectly optimal cadence. Yeah, there we go. Uh, I think it's Anki. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, but that to me is, is completely game changing, especially if you're trying to consume very specific information. Um, I, I would try to get into those like meta skills of consuming information and how can I allocate the time if I'm going to be memorizing flashcards or something to, to do it as efficiently as possible. Um, and then the last thing I think is really important, just like have fun with it, right? Like you're taking it because it's interesting to you and, um, and you want to do well, but like at the end of the day, the certificate, whatever these things, it's just a piece of paper, like remembering that the part of the process and having fun with it and, and enjoying it and learning it and how you're going to apply it down the road is what, what really pays the dividends. So I apologize if that was a little disjointed, uh, but hopefully it was helpful in some way. <laughs> Absolutely, I love that. Can't wait no, to see that video. Yeah, can't wait to see that video come out. Uh, speaking of Jeff Lee, uh, Aiden just said a uh, shout out to uh, both Kenji and Harpreet Soto for having Jeff Lee on their uh, on their podcast, respective podcast. Yeah, that was a great episode. Definitely check that out. A lot of tips there to learn. Monica, I, I do want to say that there are a couple episodes you might want to tune into from my podcast with Scott H. Young, who wrote the book Ultra Learning. And then there's also Barbara Oakley, who uh, she's written a book called A Mind for Numbers, but then she also is the creator of the course Learning How to Learn. So we kind of talked about uh, learning how to learn. Um, so definitely look for those. Um, shout out to uh, Auntie. Auntie actually just passed a, a certificate exam. Auntie, if you'd like to share some tips with Monica that you found uh, helped you in this process, please do. Uh, and also huge congrats for, for passing that exam. I think it was, uh, you said it was the data campaign analyst certification, man. That's huge. Congratulations. Uh, what, what are some tips you could share with Monica? And then if anybody else would like to share some tips with Monica, uh, please do let me know. Just um, you know, use the uh, raise hand reaction. I'll give you a, a call. Uh, and he said he's going to do it offline because he cannot talk at the moment. Uh, Monica, I'm curious for, uh, for your learning materials is mostly like textbooks, videos. How are you going about studying this? Um, so my current certification, I went through a formal course that they offered and they provided study materials and also they had, um, set up a flash a flashcard website, which was pretty cool. Um, so any resources that I find available, I definitely go to, um, for techniques getting, um, Aside from this particular certification, just learning in general, um, which is my passion, you know, getting your hands dirty, um, that Ken said is very, very uh, uh, useful. Um, and something else to add to that is like failing on purpose um, to understand like the error codes and how to fix the back end and whatnot. Um, so, yeah. 
Let's go to uh, Jennifer Norton. I see Jennifer Norton uh, has some has some tips here. Go for it, Jennifer. I'm working through my MBA right now, and I brought my, my I, I'm like you. I love to learn, and I just brought my finance grade from a solid C up to a solid A. And the thing that I changed was my study habits, where I did more repetition and I introduced color into reading. Um, so where I read chapters multiple times. You can see like each time I go through, I'm, I'm using a different color pencil for highlighting, things like that, reading it multiple times. But then the projects and the practice quizzes, I, I sent my professor the list of all the practice quizzes that I took and my grades tracked with my grade change in, in the class throughout the semester. So definitely, if you can get more of those practice quizzes, oh, dive in on those. But repetition and whatever it is you're doing, that's going to help your memory so much. I love that color technique. That's really awesome for like those visual learners. Go to uh, Rashad. Uh, yeah. So uh, I have a story about taking the GMAT in the winter of 2014, I think. Um, so I had the Manhattan prep books and I only like studied for it for like a week, I think um, pretty intensely every day. And uh, when I, I took the first practice test the night before the exam, and I got a 6.30 and I was not satisfied with that. Um, and what happened is that they gave me uh, exactly which areas um, I was not performant at. So I basically, that night, I, in, I sort of invented a couple drills, very simple drills to work on just those really, really specific areas. Um, I did the drills that night. I woke up, I did the drills the next day, and then I went to the test and um, took it and I got a 7.40. So increased it by 110 in a day. And um, I mean, that's a practice. So a practice versus like actual, right? There's a difference. But um, I think one thing that's, that helps me is to hone in on what you're actually missing rather than to think of learning as this like giant impossible whale or something. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, I would, I would focus in. Um, also, if you're talking in general about learning, I think the fastest way for me to learn is to have principles first and then all new information I get can I can hang on those principles. I think of it like a skeleton, a framework. And those are usually like, um, I don't know, universal ideas, almost like features that work across data, like centralization versus decentralization. You can use that to understand a lot of things, right? It works in your brain. It works in like social organization. It works in history and it works in, in data. Like the same concept can apply to many things. So if you learn more universal principles, I find it easier to hang other information or see connections between different fields. Thank you so much. Uh, Serge, any, any tips here for, uh, for uh, Monica? Not really. I don't have a fixed process. It really depends on what I'm trying to learn. Uh, I try to adapt to the content I'm learning. I can't think it's ever the same thing, but yeah, I mean, I wish I had more insight into that. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I, I, I don't have a very... I mean, I, I'm a very visual person, so like I, I like learning and I also like learning by doing probably my main way. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. more like a maze. I have to run around <laughs> to teach. Yeah, it's probably, probably, good, probably a good approach for sure for, you know, these type of certification exams. Uh, I mean, Monica, I assume it's for like some software type of certification, right? So, yeah, learning by doing and and uh, I, I would just... I would see if I could find forums or communities where people have talked about it and maybe just discuss common topics and 
just ask yourself questions as you're working through stuff. That's that's kind of like the biggest thing that, that I found helps me is just make sure I'm going in with questions or I'm asking questions while I'm working through something. Um, but yeah, everybody else has gotten some great, great tips there. Um, if anybody else has anything to add, please do let me know. Uh, let's see if there's any other questions coming in on LinkedIn or in the chat here. No questions. If you guys got a question, please do let me know. Well, thank you so much, guys. I do have to hop off because I'm going to go study. But thank you guys so much. <laughs> Happy studying and enjoy. Um, shout out to Vin Vicious in the building. Vin, good to see you, man. It's been a while. Uh, let's... Uh, so I don't see any questions. So let me go with the questions I was about to open with at the beginning of happy hour to kind of kick things off. I think last week we were talking about what were some, some failures or losses that we took this year um, and, you know, how we react to them, but let's, let's do the flip this time. What are some unexpected wins that happened? Like what was something that at the beginning of 2021, you're like, you just like the black swan of this year for yourself, I guess, like a black swan event for yourself this year. Uh, let's start with, uh, let's start with Vin. A positive one, positive though. Like, what was something positive, unexpected? Positive black happened? swan. I don't know. I didn't have anything that was unexpected. I think this year has been like the most planned, disciplined year I've ever had. You know, definitely had some successes, a lot of incremental stuff this year, but I don't really like, I didn't have one big bang or one big win or one like massive jump forward. I guess I finally took the plunge on Substack. Yeah, that's <laughs> maybe that's my big win. Is I finally I'm consistent on Substack. I'll I'll just say that. Yeah, Vin has been so consistent that I didn't hear from him for a week, and I was like, "Is this guy still alive?" Let me uh, text him. <laughs> text him and find out. Uh, if you are not already following Vin on Substack, please uh, make sure you do. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? And then after Jennifer, let's go to Rashad and then Russell. I want to hear about some uh, unexpected big wins that you guys. Uh, had this year uh, and by the way everybody listening on linkedin if you are listening on linkedin i see there's about 10 or 11 of you be sure to smash that like smash your reaction do something let me know you're there if you got any questions on anything whatsoever whether it's data science machine learning any other random question that you have please do let us know in the chat and uh i'll also drop a link for you to join us in the room as well uh jennifer go for it many of you guys know i work at intel our big win this year was getting pat gelsinger as our ceo having a technician i mean he's He's deeply technical and strategic and having him back at the helm is a huge win for the company. So we, I, I, I'm not aware of that. Uh, I don't keep up on like uh, companies like this, but was he a previous Intel CEO? Then he came back or what's that? What's that? What's that? Arc so he like? spent 30 years at Intel. Literally he came in like a, an intern analyst kind of kid uh, basically started and did 30 years of his career at Intel. And then he went over to, um, VMware. He was a CEO there when he was passed over for CEO at Intel. And then we had some rocky years and you guys may know that we've fallen behind. Um, and he's come back. He has injected so much energy into this company. It's absolutely fantastic. It's a, it's a really good thing for the company. So it's, it's a delight to have him back. It's getting us back on track. Awesome, man. Uh, love to hear that. Yeah. Intel, uh, I remember just it being a huge part of, of, really my youth because I'm from Sacramento and it seems like that was like the largest employer of people in Sacramento. There's a huge Intel presence in Sacramento and Folsom and in that uh, area. Let's uh, let's go to uh, Rashad and then uh, uh, after Rashad, we can go to uh, uh, Russell. And then uh, I see some questions coming out on LinkedIn. So I'll uh, make sure to queue those up specifically uh, Adi Dev, uh, Supnang's question there. But Rashad, what was a uh, unexpected big win for you this year? Uh, well, I didn't. So I, I have two like things to mention. One, uh, I became a consistent runner, consistent exerciser, 
which dramatically increased the quality and the persistence of my thinking, I guess. So I could like think harder, longer, which affects literally everything I do, especially in my job. Uh, that started in September. So I've continued. And um, yeah, that's so many knock-on effects from that, just, just doing that. Um, and I did it without uh, much of any self-discipline. So that's something by finding the right motivation. Um, the other thing is job related. So last year around this time, my team was cut in half, uh, laid off, right? Uh, data scientists. And now this year, our, we've had like enormous success in um, uh, delivering a project, having nice results. And then now like a shitload of people know about us internally. Um, and this and this is in real estate finance against the backdrop of Zillow's enormous failure, right? So having those kinds of events also helped me uh, hone my thinking to some extent on um, the systems you need to put in place to make sure that something like that doesn't happen in our case. So um, that's like, that's pretty cool. So it's kind of like, for me, it's like a turnaround year, I guess, in my career and also in uh, what we're doing. And then while having more fun in the process, you know, leaning into, I guess, what I enjoy most about leading a data science, a small data science practice, as opposed to focusing on the painful obligations and how people won't listen or whatever, you know? Absolutely love that, man. Thank you so much. Uh, positive Black Swan for me, I will say, was I did not expect to be in this uh, bi-weekly group with uh, Rashad and uh, Mark Freeman and Avery Smith. We got this little uh, weekly group that we meet up with and we just pour our guts out to each other. It's great. It's like creator therapy. Uh, so I didn't expect that, but man, thank you for uh, thank you for having me as part of that. Let's go to uh, let's go to Russell Willis, and then uh, we'll go to uh, Adi Dev's question. Adi Dev's got an interesting question. I'm gonna uh, send this one straight to Ken because I know he'll have some good stuff to it. Adi Dev wants to ask about uh, deliberate practice uh, in data science and how we practice that because I know Ken, you've created a few uh, good YouTube videos about that. So we'll uh, chat about that after we hear from Russell. Evening, everyone. Uh, so. You know, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a, a real big black swan thing, but one thing that has been uh, positive for me this year has been re-enabling consistency after the, um, should we call it, disruption of 2020 post-COVID, etc. Everything was kind of up in the air. Uh, and one of the most obvious things I've done consistently has been join the uh, Artists of Data Science Happy Hours. Uh, so I've been coming to these for a little over a year now. Uh, I think I started coming to them maybe November uh, last year, but then over Christmas with the holiday season going on, I kind of missed a few of them, you know, uh, when to do some some stuff. And back in January, I, I made a, a commitment that I wanted to kind of stick with them because they're great when I join. Uh, and it's kind of like exercising, I find, you know, I used to I used to train in martial arts when I was young. And I find, you know, I'd get home from work late and I'd have like 25 minutes to turn around, get changed and get back out of the door. And some, some days I just really couldn't motivate myself. Well, you know, shall I just, shall I just watch the TV and, and, and chill tonight just for a change? But when I made myself go do it, I always felt better doing it and felt better after. So you uh, went to mute there for some reason, uh, but that was very powerful, man. I love that. You said you felt better doing it and felt better after you yeah. went through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love coming to these and, and listening to, to you guys. There's always great topics of conversation here. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a shame if I do miss them. I mean, I can't promise I'll, I'll never miss them again, but uh, I always plan to come. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey man, it's, it's my own little thing. And I, you know, I've missed, I missed a few episodes here. I think you've been more consistent than me in my own happy hours this year. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> 
thank you uh, thank you for for being here man i appreciate you uh being here every weekend and hanging out with us uh so let's go to uh, adi dev's question adi dev question coming through from linkedin uh he's he was asking for tips on deliberate practice in the field of data science uh so we'll go to ken to that but before we go to ken uh once i want to say, Adi, i'm going to send you a link to an episode i did with uh jeff lee uh we actually talked a lot about deliberate practice in that episode and he's also i'll try to find the uh, blog post where he specifically talks about applying deliberate practice to data science uh and and data science learning so that you can kind of um uh, read that as well but ken go for it yeah actually jeff is probably like my go-to guy to talk about deliberate practice. Um, him and I both started training jujitsu around the same time and we've been bouncing back and forth, like different ideas about how to improve on that and, and to like be really efficient with our practice. I mean, I'm not old by any means, but like I, I, I feel it after a practice and there's a limited amount that I can do. And so just like being really efficient and, and useful and like, and um, intentional about your time and your training and anything is important because there's all these constraints. Uh, for data science in particular, uh, something that I've found to be unbelievably valuable, like disproportionately valuable, is code review. And it's something that I used to really hate to do. It just wasn't wasn't a whole lot of fun for me. Uh, but as I've gotten older, or as I've learned more, I've realized that the more I look at uh, notebooks, particularly on Kaggle, just Kaggle kernels of what the people that I really look up to are doing, the more I get to see how they think and how they work. And, and I get to sort of just like do a bunch of different case studies. And I think as you've heard me probably talk about in the past, like a broken record, uh, I think projects and like experimentation is unbelievably important. But I think the flip side of that coin is like the case study approach and following along and understanding someone else's thought process. Because the more you understand someone else's thought process, the better you understand your own thought process, and the easier it is for you to start applying a lot of the things that you're that you're uh, that you're learning or that you're picking up. Um, I you know I would when I was really trying to learn as much as I could, I was going through like three four calculus kernels a day, like copying like cells and then like tinkering around with the code in the cells to see if I could get it to change different things. I think this is like really valuable, especially with, um, with like data visualization, like figuring out the, the colors and all these different types of things. So that would be a place that I would start uh, that might not be as, uh, as traditional as, as some of the like more basic things that I would usually say. <laughs> and thank you so much. Uh, let's hear from uh, Rashad. Uh, so one thing I found when I was learning, it was much more useful. So in the beginning, I, I was concerned with having being able to list enough things on my resume um, to have a breadth of skills. But uh, it actually is far, far more useful, I found, to go really deep into a specific project and then just sort of do all the things related to that, that project. Um, I find I learn a lot more. It also gives you, it teaches you the things that are harder to teach, like um, asking tough questions of your data. And are you doing things right, I guess, broadly speaking, instead of trying to say, I do R and Python and C++ or something. Um, that's one thing. Uh, another thing, if you're in an organization, so I've implemented this, is um, uh, rotating paired programming sessions. So the whole team goes into sort of a, they rotate with each other and every week they get paired with um, uh, another person on the team. And then uh, there's two hours dedicated and then each hour, one person leads. So every week you're paired with a different person and then you take turns leading and following in a paired programming session. 
And over time, what happens is that the knowledge, everyone's knowledge comes out of their heads and into the team. So it's a sort of a synergistic knowledge effect. So everyone's experience gets brought to bear on all the specific challenges. Um, that's what I found quite deliberate because it forces you to understand things that you're not necessarily doing hands-on all the time. So it quickens your ability to understand new stuff. Um, it also makes everyone familiar with what everyone else is doing. You can see like, oh, maybe this would be useful for that client or that over here, over there. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of your reasons to do it, but if you can like have a group of small group of people and then like help each other on each other's projects. Um, I'd say that's a pretty pretty good way to learn learn quickly in a very like problem specific context rather than a more generalized context. Uh, thank you so much. It, real quick though, uh, this background you have here is quite interesting. What is this? Oh yeah, this, yeah. This is uh, this is one of my favorite paintings. Uh, it's called The Fall of Grenada. Grenada. Uh, it's just it it is uh, a romantic portrayal, I guess, uh, in 1491 when the Spanish uh, conquistadors, the reconquistos, completed and they conquered. Uh, Granada, and that's the Alhambra in the background. And I really like it as I saw it in Spain. And also I uh, proposed to my now wife at the Alhambra in Spain, in Granada. So sort of meaningful. And I kind of like the history stuff. And yeah, my history oh, too. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Uh, shout out to uh, Shantana Deli is in the building. Shantana, uh, I see you're there hanging out. No need to, uh, no need to unmute or, or turn that camera on if you're busy, but just want to say what's up, man. It's uh, always good to have Shantana in the building. Um, so, so Adidev, hopefully that was some great uh, feedback for you. Like the, the biggest part about deliberate practice is it's repetitions and repetitions over a long period of time. And you have to chunk out several hours per day to make it happen, right? If you want to get to that 10,000 hours. So just make sure you're doing a lot of repetition, but make sure the repetition is not... In the comfort zone, just make it slightly beyond where it is that you're currently at, right? So just make it tough, just slightly a little bit tougher than, than you're comfortable with. And that's how you kind of pull yourself forward and along, so to speak. Um, and you got a question. Let's go for it. Yeah. So this morning, I just, I saw the machine learning assessment on LinkedIn and I was like, maybe I should take this. Let's see what this is about. And uh, a couple of my friends had taken it, taken it, and fortunately, I passed. I was actually a little bit worried about that. Uh, I'm wondering what people thought of it. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if if anyone has taken it, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. If not, I'm happy to share my thoughts. Uh, but I don't want to like uh, bias anyone with with my beliefs before before I open a discussion. Is anyone here taking the LinkedIn skills assessment for machine learning? I don't know if I've taken it or not. Uh, I think I, yeah, I have taken the skills assessment. I don't remember anything about it. Uh, I took it quite a long time ago, uh, but apparently I was in the top 30% of the 726,000 people who took it. Uh, all right. But yeah, I don't remember anything about this assessment, man. Like what, what was it? What was it like? Well, I think that that's, that's an important point that you just raised is that you don't remember taking it. It's a 15 question assessment that you're supposed to, I know this is being streamed on li live on LinkedIn, so hopefully we don't get booted if I say something. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a 15-question assessment, um, and they're supposed to appraise some level of machine learning skill from this. To me, I thought that that was, like, laughable, <laughs> right? Like, uh, I, I don't know. Like, well, I, I just don't understand what the point of this is. Like, the questions were, you know, a lot of them were, like, naming uh, uh they were like memory based, right? They weren't function based. They weren't showing you a graph. They weren't asking you to interpret. There are only a couple questions like that. And I, I'm just interested at a broader level. What is LinkedIn looking to 
to achieve with this? Does this help anyone or does it make like landing or hiring a data scientist more confusing? Because literally, you know, 700,000 people have taken this. I mean, at least 300,000 people have, uh, well, not quite that, like 200 some odd thousand people have passed this in the top 30% to be able to show it on their profile. You know, does this, you know, my, my biggest thing is, does this help or does this make things more confusing for everyone? I'm a little bit in the the camp that it makes things more confusing. Uh, let's go to uh, Vin. Let's hear from Vin real quick. And then I'll give you my two cents on this as well. Yeah, I, so I've done this a lot when I bring in a new client or get brought in, excuse me, not bring in, when I get brought into a new client, I'll look at the hiring process and I'll go through and look at all of these assessments, you know, the things that you're talking about. And then I'll have the team that does the hiring take their own assessments. And I kid you not, the majority of the time, everyone, not like most people, everyone fails at some point. And these are people doing the job. They can't pass their own assessments. And I think that's where we're at is any assessment we think is valid is probably too hard and probably too restrictive. Any assessment that the majority of people can pass very easily probably isn't going to tell you a whole lot. And that's where I find most assessments are. I don't think you can put a quiz up online and assess a complex skill that takes a level of intelligence. And I'd like to think that what we do for a living takes a level of intelligence. And so I think it takes a level of intelligence to assess it. I think that we have to come up with something that's a little bit more, a little bit more comprehensive and a little bit more leaning towards assessing what people know not trying to figure out what they don't know. And we exclude too many people because they don't know everything that we could potentially think of asking them. And we ask all of these massive broad questions because we don't really know what we're going to hire the person to do in the first place. And so there are a ton of problems that I see kind of hiding under the covers of your question. So every time somebody asks an assessment question, it's like, there's, you know, the iceberg, you see the tip here, but the real problem is, What's underneath that assessment, what we're trying to figure out is so much more complicated and we're trying to simplify it because we have recruiters in the process. We have HR in the process, but we have a lot of different groups in the process that don't really understand all of the assessments enough to do them themselves. And so we have to simplify in some ways, but by doing that, we lose a lot. So like I said, this is kind of this iceberg of problems that sit underneath every assessment. And when LinkedIn sends something out, I mean, I like LinkedIn. It's a great company. They got, they have really good analytics around talent, but I would like them at some point to create a body of evidence to support what it is they're doing. I'd love to see like science, real hardcore science brought into their assessment methodologies. And if they have it, I'd love to see them publish it. Yeah. Well, that, to me, that's the, the most interesting thing is like, what, what statement is LinkedIn trying to make? with just a, a rinky dink assessment that you could, that anyone could take and put on their profile, right? They are one of the companies that essentially like coined the term data science, right? Like they're one of the largest influencers in this space. Everyone looks up to them and then putting out something like this, I think is very problematic. If it was different, if it was like what Google did with the data analytics certificate, right? Where it's like, Hey, if you take this, like you are qualified to, for a job with us, that is one thing, right? You're putting your money where your mouth is. To me, I just find this very gimmicky and saying, hey, like, look, you can put this badge on your profile and, and you know, we're the, we're the, the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts here and, 
And like, this is maybe that's not giving enough credit to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, honestly. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think that it's just a really interesting play from them, knowing how serious the, the employment problem and this and like the credibility problem is within this domain. I mean, if you look at like if I click on the assessment, I can't see um, like what topics were covered, what percentage of each topic, like, you know, it would be useful to get some kind of more insight into what was actually on on the exam you know what i mean or on this assessment uh because without that it's like okay well do you just ask me questions about just basic stuff like what, what was the distribution of questions i think that would be a little bit more helpful that's for sure um anybody else have any the uh anything to say on this surge or well i i usually found the opposite that the assessments tend to be especially these take-home ones that companies do way too much and they seem to be trying to assess too much at the same time and uh it's also discriminatory towards people that don't have the time to devote to that and in a way it's uh, also self-selection process because they're not going to be able to get people that you know already have a job and may be interested but don't you know really don't have you know seven eight hours to spend on a on a, an assessment I, I haven't seen too much to the opposite where it's it's like the LinkedIn assessment, uh, you know, too silly to even, you know, uh, really rate, have a bar where you're actually filtering some something. You know, I, I haven't seen that, but that's uh, that's the whole other direction. And um, yeah, e either extreme is not good, you know. Uh, comments coming here from Antti. I agree with Ken. Took some of the LinkedIn assessments, and they are joke compared to these actual certification programs like Google or Data Camp. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I feel like this is a point that we probably have discussed here before. But you know, people talk about standardization of knowledge or standardization of of skill sets in data science. Like, does it make sense to have like do what the actuaries do, have a series of exams, and then once you pass that series of exams, you become a data scientist? I don't know. I'm not for that type of. Uh, definitely not for that type of. Uh, format at all, mostly because those actuarial exams you know, I've still have nightmares. That's the reason I went gray and have to color my beard now. Coach Double is here from you. And uh, hopefully you guys can hear me okay, Jonathan. Just let me know that my uh, my audio is coming in a bit uh, muted than everyone, but hopefully it's okay. Uh, I know on the podcast it'll all be balanced out and everything. You guys will be able to hear me, but hopefully this is okay. Coach Double, let's hear from you. Yeah, uh, I think when it comes to like standardized testing, right, or at least for like interview testing, uh, the one time and the only time I've ever found this actually useful is let's say they give you a take-home assessment and you go back and, uh, you know, run whatever data analytics or whatever data science models you want on it, and then you come back to them. And then the following interview is actually effectively a code review, right? Now, if they're going to actually give me some feedback on the way that I approach the problem, the way that I approach the data, uh, and, and the tools that I use to succeed, to succeed or fail on the task handed, that's the only time I see any value in it for one pure reason. Now, I like to flip interviews around personally. Now, if I'm going to go to that effort and put six, eight hours of effort into a particular problem, I want to know that the team I'm joining is going to value that effort enough to give me actual feedback. Now, if they're going to turn around and give me as an interviewee, someone who's not paid to do this, if they're going to take time out of their day to actually go through serious feedback on it, then I'm convinced that when it comes to some of that are actually paying for their day job, they still have that culture of feedback, uh, you know, built into the company. 
that's the only real takeaway that I can take away from a from doing an actual assessment is trying to figure out okay are these guys just going to say oh yeah yeah we have a cultural feedback and code review but not actually do it or are they the real deal in terms of uh, providing that feedback but to be honest there are a lot more effort inexpensive ways of ascertaining that about a company so like the six to eight hours you spend modeling something like what's the return on it for me as someone applying for a job right um and i'm not sure they're really getting the returns on that many people spending time uh, attempting those assessments anyway so yeah so far i haven't seen too many convincing cases of why a a tech assessment is necessary i guess the other reason is uh, i have been in that situation where i've been given a technical assessment and then i realized that the person assessing me just doesn't know how to approach the problem anyway so am i joining a highly immature team that's the other thing that i can ascertain from that but those are the only two things that i can really see as value for, for my time doing those assessments in the first place. So are we just going crazy trying to figure out who's the real deal and who's just, uh, you know, uh, promoting themselves the right way? I mean, like, is it, are we actually facing that many applicants is kind of my question, or do we just like the idea of assessments? Because I feel like every everywhere you turn, people are like, oh, we need data scientists, well, we need machine learning engineers, and there's a shortage of skill set in the market. If there's a shortage of skill set in the market, what are we trying to separate wheat from chaff from? Like, are we really sifting through thousands of applicants to go through that process? Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, comment here from uh, Vin says, I think our biggest unaddressed challenge is how do you assess someone who's very senior? Uh, how do you know someone with 20 plus years uh, in a field? Is there a track record enough to hire them without an interview? It's an interesting point, right? Um, any other thoughts on this LinkedIn skills assessment? Rashad, any, uh, oh, sorry, Ken, I see your hands up. Go for it. And then we'll go to Rashad. Yeah, I, I just want to touch on something that Vin uh, uh, and sub just both touched on, right, is that as you get more senior in your role, like you have better opportunities at different places, right? Like why would I go to a place where I felt like they're wasting my time with a skills assessment or a really long take come test when I have other opportunities lined up? There's like an increased opportunity cost associated with time applying as you grow in your career, right? So if someone who has 20 years of experience and they're, they're getting hired for XYZ really like, you know, fancy job title, like they're kind of too, like their time is too valuable for them to be fooling around with an assessment a lot of the time. And I actually like assessments for like junior candidates, especially if, if you're considering their time and you're like, you know, just, just as we were, you're saying before, like not wasting someone's time doing code review, whatever that might be. I think that there's a tremendous amount of value in what people can do rather than what they've done in the past. And the assessment is a way to show that, but you know, there, there has to be alternatives. And, and if someone has a long 20 year track record, do we, do we really need to evaluate their technical skill as much? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if they're still an individual contributor, maybe, but most people who have been in data science roles that long, if there are any period, um, I don't know if there'd be too many questions around that. Absolutely. I feel like like just these kind of assessments that are put on a social media profile kind of as like a badge, uh, 
that's probably more for the user putting it on their on their profile right like just probably just like oh yeah pass assessment like if i saw that on a resume though if i saw somebody put that on a resume i'd probably laugh uh like what nobody cares about this man like why are you why are you talking about this and it's not something that i'd bring up with a bunch of friends data science friends like in a bar like hell yeah did you pass this linkedin assessment yeah well you know what i mean um yeah i think it's probably there just for the the actual person more so that's uh taking it but i'd love to hear from rashad go for it uh yeah so um i used to have like a, a take on thing when i was just copying what everyone else does um and of course i've taken a bunch of them myself but i started to think you know leading a data science team like wait a minute what's a facsimile of the actual job um and what's a facsimile of how i would work with this individual would i be breathing over their neck micromanaging them as i watch them write lines of code say in the live coding or you know would i be doing coding code interview yes i do think there is a discrimination thing where people the more senior the person probably the less time they have to take assessments um i personally like to give um uh verbal cases because not only can you it, it's a facsimile of how you actually work with people i think but also like you can talk through more models and not like go into intense math that's not needed for the job per se but say okay which parameters might you look at if, if you know that's a quicker way to test that than like having them to have the write the code and then they only do a single a simple model which is what everyone does in code you know, interviews anyway. And, you know, you can cover a broader range of things in verbal case. So I, I think basically facsimile the job. I also think compliment who's already there, right? So if I was a different kind of leader, I would probably want to pick a different kind of person. And you want to compliment like what the team's already there, like team composition, they should be complimentary. Like everyone should be better than the leader at something, right? I think that's like a starting point. And then the things that they're better at should be different. I mean, generally, assuming that you're everyone's working on similar projects. Um, and then, you know, finally, I guess I would say testing the capability to work autonomously. So you're testing like, OK, given this problem, what would you do? Uh, how would you advance it if you were faced with something like that? Like, oh, the performance is bad. And you're like, OK, well, what what are different things you could look at? Then, you know, that's like that's how I think about it, because the leader's time is valuable too. the person managing the data scientist. So you want to make sure that they can work autonomously when needed or as much as possible, given their level, of course. Um, and then over time, it just grows. I also feel like personally, verbal cases can adjust to the seniority of the person relatively simply. Um, but in order to give one, I think it's the onus is on the leader to define a, a concrete enough problem, a concrete enough problem, because if you're just doing like, we don't know what we want, so we're going to put every tech stack thing on the on the job description. That's like, you can't really come up with a cogent business problem that you could talk through in like 45 minutes to an hour, I think. So it, it really puts more effort on the leader to come up with something that, that really does get close to what the job is, but can still cover breadth and depth as needed and adapt. That's how I think of it. Love the way this conversation is uh, unfolding. A lot of great insight here. Uh, Russell, you've got some great comments here in the uh, chat as well. Talk to us about this. Talking about uh, unorthodoxy. Uh, audio video doing good there, Russell. I, I could read out what you're saying. Um, oh, there you go. No, it's all right. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm okay. Uh, a little window came across my mute button and I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah, um, yeah so I was, I was just responding to uh, the great um, comments from um, Vin and uh, Ken earlier on about uh, assessing 
senior talent. And, uh, you know, one big wild card there is unorthodoxy, I think. Uh, now, I, I really value unorthodoxy highly, so long as it is um, well-conceived and well-implemented. You know, it's not done recklessly or loosely. Unorthodoxy can be really good. And what I think drives unorthodoxy more than anything else is creativity. Now, uh, creativity is another one of the things that I prize very, very highly. And um, I think that is a, that's a secret weapon of any data scientist is a creative mindset. So try not to be stuck in a regimented routine of um, the problem A, B has solution C, and that's it. You know, if you can find a solution E that solves it in 20 fewer steps, and you're going through that process 100 times, you're going to reduce the um, processing burden of your overall combined element by a huge amount. So creativity is a, is a huge um, superpower. And that can lead to unorthodoxy. So unorthodoxy is only unorthodox because it's never been done before, or it, it's chosen not to be done because it doesn't have the right results. So if you can um, utilize it and improve results that have been done previously or come up with a really new way of doing something that, that achieves better results or more efficient results, it's a, it's a win-win. But you do have that paradigm of habitualized reliance on the orthodox to get over, and that, that can be a huge hurdle in some cases. Russell, thank you so much. Great, great insight there. Uh, like what Ken says here, we should do at least one interview completely over Slack or Teams chat. We communicate uh, like that 40% of the time anyways. Very, <laughs> uh, very, very true. Uh, Rashad saying that creativity equals advancing quickly in your career separator. That's hard to teach. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, great discussion. Anybody else have any uh, comments on this? Greg, what about you, man? Do you got any uh, comments on this? It, it started off as a, a discussion regarding um, LinkedIn assessments, but now it's kind of more uh, morphed into assessments in general throughout like the, uh, I guess, the interview process to assess, you know, candidates seniority or assess their capability. What are your thoughts around that? I was uh, uh, connecting with a lot of what uh, others were saying, especially Russell. I do believe that uh, and, and Rashad, you know, creativity is kind of hard to measure, uh, hard to teach. Um, I, I feel like a lot of uh, people just go around uh, uh, checking a, 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 you know, a checklist uh, to say whether this person is, is smart or not, will be able to, to excel at a given position. And we're not doing enough assessment to understand, you know, where creativity comes in. Um, regardless, there's always going to be a, a risk that people will take when they're on board, you know, a new, you know, data science or, or whoever. But um, at the end of the day, I think um, creativity is, 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 is weird. Um, it's, it's more almost like an instinct uh, that you can um, use to surface those who can be creative at their jobs uh, based on what they tell you they've done in the past. So uh, overall, I was more like enjoying what, what the team before me here uh, was saying. So right on. Uh yeah, great discussion. Thank you so much for asking, Ken, uh, kicking off that discussion. Any questions coming in from LinkedIn or any questions coming in right here in the chat, please do let me know. I'm happy to, uh, happy to take those questions. Greg, what was a unexpected big win for you this year? Expected big ones for me. Um, yeah. Unexpected, like, unexpected. Un unexpected, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a sense of what, like... Um, just in general life or, you know, professionally, whatever, just in general, yeah. Yeah, um, one that was unexpected, 
unexpected for me is probably like um, being able to talk to so many like startups who are trying to, 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 to penetrate the market, right? So I've seen like a lot of them um, try to bring different use cases to the table in terms of like what they try to fill in terms of gap. Uh, I've talked to a fair amount of sort of founders, co-founders this year, and I was not expecting that for sure. And in a sense, it got me to think about, you know, what makes startup fail, especially an AI startup fail. And because I, I, I can already think that in the next five years, a lot of them will not exist anymore or will be, uh, you know, digested by somebody else. Uh, but it was quite interesting to learn like the different tools they build um, to tackle different use cases. So that was quite the learning for me uh, to a point where I would definitely love to kind of create like some sort of series where I can either film it or uh, do a live session and things like that. And I know who, who to go to for, uh, um, you know, advice, whether it's Harpreet or Ken, I know you guys uh, got my back for, for starting those, uh, those kind of things. So that was, that was the biggest biggest one for me i'm curious greg like how does uh you know how does somebody get involved in like in in angel investing like is there i don't know like like how do you do that is it just do research a company reach out to the founder say hey do you guys need funding or is there like some type of proper process you have to go through to be like registered as an angel investor? like how's this work uh if you don't want to go through the whole angel investing angel listing um i think it starts with like friendship really like who you know uh you you believe in this friend's idea and you bring in like a couple bucks there that you know your your feelings won't get hurt if you lose (laughs) it starts like that right like non-conventional unconventional ways um and then the more formal it's kind of like taking part of like uh limited partner groups like uh who are registered on angelist and and kind of like uh get into meetings to understand like what kind of uh, startups they're interested in. Uh, there are different uh, LP groups, injury investors that are interested in different kind of startups, whether they're focused on energy startups or uh, finance uh, startups or AI startups, you name it. Uh, you have to just know what group you want to be part of. And then you have the whole, um, uh, I guess, compliance that you have to do with the government, right? Because you have to have a certain amount of uh, earnings uh, to be able to be an official LP, which a lot of people have complained before because, you know, it's kind of like they feel like the government shouldn't tell them whether they should take uh, risks with their money or not. It's kind of like it's a protection that government uh, puts on people saying, you know, if you if you come in to invest, you, you have to be comfortable with losing money. And if you don't have a certain cap on your uh, income, uh, you can't be an investor. Uh, so even though it's not really controlled by the government, whether you, I think the cap is like, you have to be able to make 200 K for the past two years, uh, to become an investor. Right. And, uh, you just click that button and nobody will verify it, but it's kind of like an honest system, but the government has put it there to kind of, uh, protect people from, uh, losing all their money, especially people who don't have enough available, uh, cash. So, um, there are so many ways to go about it. Uh, I like the particular way of know, getting to know people, uh, build friendships, and uh, take a bet with a thousand bucks here and there, uh, which is the unofficial way for me. Um, 
but it's kind of like playing lottery, right? So you have to be comfortable with losing that and, and that it won't come back to you someday because uh, here you are talking to somebody you just met who became your friend for the past three months who gave you an idea that you believe could win but also could fail uh, because 90% of those uh, ideas, they do fail. So um, it's always good to do research and, and believe in the vision that that co-founder or founder uh, brings forward. Um, but I can leave this with anyone. The way I see it is um, somebody with, you know, 10K who can write 10K check easily. Uh, the way they look at it is, uh, you know, even VCs kind of look at it this way too. Do you have the the, the dream team or they, they see the, the dream team who's passionate? Um, do they have the vision? And can they convince me on that vision that the vision is big? There's a big market for it. And then the third one is, can the team do I have confidence that the team can execute on that vision? So when they have those three, that's like three good signals for them to kind of uh, give you money to, to go to the next step. Uh, lots, lots to learn there. And I'm hoping next year I can continue to learn more on this space. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, there's a... Uh... I know there's like these syndicates of like higher level, senior level data scientists that come together and they invest in companies like, you know, I've seen a number of them and they all kind of invest in might be niche companies or something like that. But I'd be interested in getting into this game if anybody wants to start the Artist of Data Science Angel Fund and, uh, you know, start investing in some cool startups. I'd be down for that. Actually, I was uh, I got approached to be a uh, advisor for a startup like in 2021 and uh, met with the met with one of the founders and started chatting with them, whatever. And then the guy just never came to me for for advising or anything. And uh, I was like, all right, well, I guess that one kind of fell through. But uh, if you guys need a startup advisor uh, and you think that I could advise you, let me know. I'd be happy to do so. Uh, let's see if anybody else got questions or comments on anything at all. Um, if not, I guess we can begin to wind it down. Um, oh, I, I, this week uh, the episode I released is actually one with. Um, uh dana mckenzie who co-authored the book of why with Udaya pearl uh so that was a great great episode hopefully you guys get a chance to check it out uh that one's about it's about an hour and a half long but man great conversation he's a you know he's a great writer he's a, he's, he's a great mathematician so we got into a lot of cool stuff uh and that was definitely a, a great book um probably one i'll visit again early next year uh book of why by Udaya pearl and dana mckenzie so definitely check that out um Ken wants to get advised on growing a beard. Oh man. <laughs> Genetics. What could I say, man? It's just the Punjabi heritage will get you hairy as fuck. Uh, that's just what it is. Um, I wanted to check, like, uh, I wanted to ask, like, uh, did you guys discuss this already? I don't, what are your feelings for, for next year? Do you see a continuation of, of the same things? Like we're going to keep talking about the same things about data science or uh, because I see three levels, right? You have, Here's what you need to study to become a data scientist. Uh, here's yeah. how you what you need to do to become a, good at ML ops and um, how to deploy. And then uh, what else we're gonna wait for uh, companies to come up with like a, a brand new data set that you can build on top of it. Or um, here's this new model that AlphaFold has developed to do things better. What are your guys' expectations uh, next year? I like that. Uh, that would be like holy crap. Like what is going on? This is changing the course of everything right now. That's a, um, that's a, that's a great question. I'm up, I'm excited to hear what people think. Uh, I remember, uh, I mean, look, look, if you've been listening to Artists of Data Science for this long, you've been tuning in for this many happy hours. If you show up and ask a question about how you can get a job in data science, 
I'm going to just immediately eject you from the room. You should have that figured out if you've been tuning into the podcast for uh, for, for this long. We've covered that uh, like somewhere in the bank of 230 hours of content that I've released is uh, the, the blueprint. You just got to figure it out. Maybe I'll distill it for you. I don't know. Uh, but we did this uh, roundtable with Comet We uh, just yesterday uh, on the 9th. We had... Um, uh, tech lead from Uber AI and uh, WorkFusion and the real real and asking the same questions like going into 2022 like what do you think is going to be some interesting uh, developments what are you most excited learning about um, one of the things that it was a uh, uh, old Jay from from Uber AI who's the tech lead there on their uh, uh, platform and he said uh, he's curious about if future engineering is dead I thought that was interesting uh, I thought that was interesting. Is, is feature engineering dead? And I also, I didn't know that there's such a, a battle going on between, um, you know, this debate between trees versus nets, right? Like why use deep learning? We can just use XGBoost. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm personally curious to see what kind of developments will happen for deep learning on structured data, if any, uh, and what implication that might have for feature engineering. Um, because if we don't have to engineer features and can start using more and more deep learning on tabular data, that could probably save a lot of time, but that'd be interesting to see how that would work. Uh, definitely an area that I'll be exploring uh, early next year as well. Uh, let's go to Russell. And then after Russell, let's go to, uh, let's go to Serge and then uh, Vin and Ken. And then Rashad. Yeah, I was, um, I, I was just wanted to, to comment on, on uh, Greg's question about, you know, what will be different next year. Um, one thing I've noticed significantly in the last few months has been uh, GPT-3 has been made widely available. You know, it's, it's been available for a while. I've been playing with it for a, a little over a year now with some um, trial um, availability and hacks that I've been a part of. Uh, but it's now gone wide scale. So I'm looking at that in two different ways. One is it's going to go big, or the second is they've made it publicly available. Does that mean there's a GPT-4 on the horizon? You know, are they doing similar to what Apple are rumored to do? You know, they've got three or four different versions under the, you know, behind the, the closed doors uh, that they're still working on now, and they've done as much as they can with GPT-3. So they'll, they'll give it away to everybody now, and, you know, within six to 12 months, they're going to be a new one coming up. Anybody got any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's another interesting aspect too. The future of transformers, like what are transformers? How like what? How are they going to evolve in twenty twenty two? What are we going to see happen uh, with that? Definitely uh, interested in in learning uh, more about that as well. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's let's go to let's go to uh, Rashad, then uh, Vin, then Ken. Uh, I don't have an immediate answer to to the question Russell posed at the end. Um, I have, I simply have two things that I think uh would be our will become bigger deals next year one is um the auto ml debate uh so like my personal opinion is that you can automate more and more with enough computational power like the testing of different ml models but you can't i feel like you can't really automate experimental design um especially like within a company which has very specific use cases very specific data with different origins i just feel like there's a lot of thinking there and you could auto ml could be a, the window to doing egregiously wrong misused things. Um, so I am wondering how we, our industry will eventually solve that to put ML into the hands of um, people who are not like data scientists, you know, in a, in, in a way that's not just like generalized intelligence, like 
you know, self-driving or like text extraction or something like that. Um, yeah, another thing, like it makes sense that someone at Uber AI would be like, is feature engineering obsolete? I mean, in most companies, there's just not enough data, I think, to, to make it obsolete. I know I find that a funny question <laughs> or a funny statement. I don't think it'll be dead for a long time. Although maybe I'm, I'm missing something big in the industry that will transform it. But I just feel like big deep learning just requires too many, too many examples. And, and a lot of times like companies data position is just not in a, it's not built to take advantage of that at all. You know, it's, and it'll be about like connecting the data. It's still about connecting the data and, and, figuring out this lineage and legacy and making sure that it's like good enough to even try to answer the questions that you have. So I feel like some parts will be automated. We're, we're, we're abstracting more and more of our jobs like Metaflow and, and, and the like, right? But I feel like that will put more weight on the other things that you can't automate, mostly like experimental design and, and what questions can you ask and answer of that data and what can you not? That's like most important skill. So maybe I think people will focus more on that going forward in data science. Great projection to next year. Absolutely love that. Uh, I'll actually uh, be releasing a piece of uh, content, a little uh, uh, experiment and write up sometime early in Q1, uh, comparing trees versus nets on a number of different uh, data sets. It'll be a really, really fun project, really fun uh, write up. So keep an eye out for that. Let's go to uh, Vin and then Ken. I think to Russell's point, just really quick, that Microsoft has done something really interesting with GPT-3. And what they've done is they've monetized the model and they did it in three different ways. They're using it in their products. So it's supporting features. They are providing access to the model and allowing customers to use the model and build features with the model and actually incorporate it into uh, their products. And they're straight out selling the model. Like they've monetized it in three different ways. And I think that's the interesting thing about GPT-3 and everything that's going to come after that is that companies are now proving a monetization model for all of this. And so, you know, when it comes to how effective is the model, what are the flaws in the model? I think those are all pretty well known, pretty well documented. So it's not like that's the end game. But I think what's interesting about GPT-3 is the fact that it, they're selling it and they're making money. Like they're actually succeeding. They've done it. And I think that's the interesting thing about GPT-3 is that it, it's making cash. Oh my God, we did it. And I think next year, what's really interesting, this is the one piece of data science that I think is interesting. And it's a collision with business is I think machine learning models and sort of this intelligent automation buzzword is making time to particular business outcomes so short that people can't be in the loop in every process anymore. I think time to business outcome is now so compressed that the speed of decision-making, the speed of change, the, the speed of business, you could say, is faster than human-scale decision-making, human time scales. And I think next year is the year we're going to see that become obvious, where businesses that use this sort of machine learning-based automation can make things like pricing decisions faster. They can resolve customer issues faster. They can do things so quickly that other companies simply can't keep up. And customers are going to basically say, look, you're a dinosaur. If you can't handle my problem, you know, real time, not you'll get back to me. But like, if you can't handle my problem real time, I don't want to deal with you anymore. 
And I think that's like next year, I think that's the machine learning trend is that we are going to like be accountable for actually driving results. <laughs> We're going to have to produce things for the business. And one of the business biggest business outcomes is that the speed of business is going to become so quick and our models are going to become such a central part of the way that businesses function that people will start talking about near the end of next year, this concept of business timescales being faster than human decision-making timescales. And we will increasingly like next year's the year we start losing control of our businesses. That's the, that's, that's a scary, scary prediction. Uh, I, do, I do have follow-up questions to that, especially with, with GPT-3, but I'd like to hear other people's uh, opinion. So um, sorry yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll go to, we'll go to uh, uh, Ken, then, then uh, Serge, then bring it back to, uh, to Greg. Uh, I think I, I want to see the intersection between ML ops and blockchain. I was reading this white paper earlier today by a, uh, it was an iModX white paper for the International Model Exchange from consortium members. It was from 2019, and uh, it was repos repository of models and data on blockchain. I was like, ah, oh, that might be an interesting application of ML ops plus blockchain, um, which would probably make sense for really, really highly regulated environments and even just versioning and controlling your models and stuff like that. But let's go to uh, let's go to Ken, then Serge, and then we're going to circle back to Greg for. Uh, his question about GPT-3. Yeah, so I agree with Ben. I think we are on the same wavelength in terms of like what one of the largest uh, problems coming up in the next couple of years is going to be. And it's that we cannot, you know, we're going to have essentially like runaway models that impact our behavior, that impact a lot of these things beyond what we can understand. I think we see this a lot with social media now. You know, you're on TikTok, you're on Instagram, you just keep scrolling, right? Like we're literally being trained by the machine learning models, right? It's the other way around. Um, and I look at it less of like a, a learning what AI, ML, these types of things are and how we use them and how we use them effectively and how we can use them in, in a, um, as, as non-threatening a way as possible. And honestly, that's something that really scares me. You know, like I, I have my tinfoil hat right nearby because I think that there's a lot of implications of how the US uses AI versus how other countries, namely China, use AI. And that is terrifying to me that, you know, we have certain cultural things around us that make it very, uh, where we protect personal information, personal data, and, and things like that in certain ways. And other countries don't believe in that. And I don't think one is right or wrong, but one of those is very advantageous for a future where AI is directly integrated with our life, uh, directly integrated with financial markets, directly integrated with like even something as, as crazy as, um, as like war or conflict. And I think that we're going to really have to think, uh, and you know, like we we're moving so much slower than the machines for us to be able to think and solve these problems in real time uh, is very dicey, <laughs> but I think we need to, in the next couple of years, start having more of these conversations and figuring out, okay, how do we like either speed ourselves up or slow technology down a little bit? So we don't, um, you know, so I don't have kids in in five years that are like that never look up from their phone, right? Or that only know things because of the advertisements that they're being told uh, through through whatever social media it is. And um, you know that that's a scary and sad future, but I also think it's one of the most fascinating problems that we could possibly solve. Is 
we've created this, this crazy burst of technology and these incredible capabilities. How do we wrangle it? How do we like make it our own again before, before it, uh, it kind of slips through our fingers. So sorry to, to yeah. end on something a little ominous, but no, no, no I love it, man. No. These are, these are important things to consider. Serge, go for it. I love that. I love that. I am. Um, it's actually a good, a good way to transition to what I'm going to say. I think it's, I think the time of reckoning has come for, uh, you know, like the way we're approaching AI, it's very brute forcey. GPT is just, uh, you know, um, another example, trillion parameter, billion parameter models aren't sustainable and they have too many gaps, too many things that can go wrong, depending on your use case. And I'm just hoping uh, we, we, we hit that wall and we will, you know, like because Moore's law is no longer going to be true as of next year. And, and we have all kinds of resource uh, issues, you know, like the kind of energy that is consumed in training these models, you know, uh, the, even on the on inference, um, you know, it all adds up. And so I think it's we have to go back to the way things were at another time where like people had to come up with creative solutions. Like back in the day when I was growing up and I'm sure some of you were also. <laughs> um, yeah, like you, you could only have uh, foul names with a certain amount of characters, you know, and, and that's and, and databases the same, you know, no field could be over. And we have to get back to that. You know, we're too spoiled. And that that keeps us from actually fulfilling creativity on that level, you know, thinking outside of the box, trying to solve, you know, NLP problems in not a brute force way, how would that look like, you know? And I honestly think that if there is a pathway to AGI is through all that sort of, you know, through those means, through creative solutions that actually use the least amount of resources possible, that think of data in a more Bayesian kind of causal way than, you know, these purely like correlation, uh, you know, uh, tensor mathematics you know it's it's not it's not going to get us to that level i think and also i think uh in the meanwhile something that can help also pave the way is uh a greater use of xai of the tools it offers um and uh yeah if i make make a commercial for my book yeah <laughs> I, I i discuss that in the book of how it, you know, it's uh, it's coming, it's coming. The need for the the using these tools, which already exist, which aren't perfect, and I, I think they can only get better, especially if people are paying attention to them. Talks about your book real quick, Serge. Uh, which uh, what's it called? Where can people find it? Uh, it's it's called Interpretal Machine Learning with Python. Okay, is that the the only book you got out, or is there another one with that? Or uh, well, the the second edition is coming out. Okay, yeah. second edition's coming out. Nice. Definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, man. Uh, you know, talk to me uh, about, you know, get send, send a copy my way and let's uh, get you on the podcast and talk about this. I'd love to learn more about this. Um, have a proper episode. Um, yeah, a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of interesting topics going on here. Um, don't see any more questions or comments coming in from anywhere. I guess we can begin to wrap it up, guys. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Next week's going to be the last happy hour of the year because the week after that, is Christmas Eve and week after that is uh, New Year's Eve, but then we'll be back after next week. So next week, December 17th, right? Yeah, December 17th, um, 
we'll uh we'll have the we'll have the uh, office hours uh, happy hours got to keep it short though i'll keep it only to an hour because i got to get to a hockey game after that um but then we'll be back on january the 7th which is the first january in 2022 uh so looking forward to it we can call next week the uh the holiday party man hopefully you guys can make it uh all of you guys listening please please come and hang out all of you guys that uh, haven't been in uh the office hours for a long time i do miss you guys please come and hang out it's been a while since i've seen a lot of you guys so uh do come do hang out going live next week on uh tuesday twice on tuesday uh talking to dr lara pence uh she co-authored this book with uh, uh joe Desana, 10 rules for resilience uh so we'll be talking about her role in this book and then also she's got something called life box and we'll be talking about that uh then that same day that's the actual day where i'm talking to the folks from one salting it was not this week it's next next week so for those of you guys that are waiting for that sorry if i was uh, misleading you guys but yeah we'll talk to jonathan javier and jerry lee of one salting next week and then on the 18th of december going live at 10 a.m central time with um with jeremy anderson we're going to be talking about his book minding the machines uh building and leading data science and analytics teams uh, a widely publication book so this is going to be a great uh discussion i'm looking forward to chatting with him um you guys thank you so much for joining me be sure to tune into the podcast released uh today with Udeas. oh sorry dana mckenzie who co-authored the book of why with Udea pearl uh, so it'll be a good time. Uh, Ken says he's going to be in LA next week. If anybody wants to uh, hang out with him, send him a message. Uh, I wish I was there with you. I wish I was there. Uh, I'll be in California in January at some point. Supposed to go for the holidays, but did not get my son's passport in time. But uh, I'll be back in Sacramento in uh, in January. Uh, so Vin, uh, I'll I'll make a trip out to, to to Reno, man. I'll come kick it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely come to Reno and, and hang out. You guys, take care. Have a good rest of the afternoon, evening, wherever it is you are. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>